So I've got two titles to this talk. One's poetic and one's not. The first one is, and it's referring to this and our life and things as they are. (laughs) And the title is This Undeniable Intimacy. The second title is What Happens to You When You Pass Somebody in the Corridor Here? And I was reflecting on that today and hopefully I'll be able to reflect on both of these. I don't know if it's been spoken about so much on this retreat. Can you hear okay at the back, Joe? Can it go down a little bit, Mark? We have this building and we have this many, many times in the day where you're going to be passing each other in the corridor, in these very narrow, tight little corridors we have here. Any of you ever mindful at that point when you pass each other? Any of you ever notice that you have contact with your belly, heart and head as you walk past another being? Or just other things happen sometimes? Yeah. For the last half a day, I really encourage you just to make that a point of contemplation. It will serve you well in going out of here as we move on tomorrow into more informal contacts with each other. I've noticed over the years in those corridors all kinds of things. It's a great place for seeing your mind. You know, someone's too fast, someone's too slow, or you're kind of coming. At the same point, do you look, do you not look? Do you contract a little bit, not take up too much room? Do you kind of make it your territory? What happens in your body? What happens in your heart? What happens in your mind? And that's all in the silence. Somebody I spoke to today, she, she said, I really get it now, how wars happen. And she wasn't joking. She was really seeing um, her own mind in response, in the silence, to things that happen here. And it was a very humbling reflection for her of really seeing her mind no different or the seeds in that, in her mind, of the same nature as that which extrapolates in our world into more obvious conflicts which we may not think we would ever be, need to be part of. But a, a mind that hasn't questioned our assumed sense of Self and other is a mind that can go to war, actually. So it's a profound practice. It's what happens to you as you walk past each other on the corridor. This work is for your liberation, for the service of each other. And it's also really world work, as I see it. As we untangle a little bit slowly and unfold a little bit, a little bit less of that needing to demarcate what's me and mine. So I want to start with a a story of one of my teachers who fits with this undeniable intimacy. And I sat a retreat with a really lovely woman teacher one time. And at the end, there was a man and a woman teaching, they were both great. At the end, the women presented 
the female teacher with, um, I think it was Kuan Yin, some, some, one of the female deities, and we had it wrapped up in wrapping paper and made a little presentation and handed it to her. It was a different kind of retreat than this. Don't worry, I'm not expecting something. <laughs> and um, as, we, as we handed it to her and she started to take the string off and, and started to unwrap it, she looked at all of us, all the women, and she said, I'd rather be unwrapping you. I'd rather be unwrapping you. And it, what did she mean? And it wasn't one of those, you know, I leaned forward when I said it. She wasn't kind of a predating on us. It was a very beautiful, heartfelt and deep recognition, really, of, I think, what draws us, many of us, to see what's true. We can put it in terms of, the, somebody said last night, this unrelenting search for the truth but to really know who and what we are beyond the wrappings and finding out wrappings that we didn't even know we had and there's more to see. There's a poem, Beautiful Creature. There's a beautiful creature in a hole you have dug. So at night I set fruit and grains and little pots of wine and milk beside your soft earthen mounds. And I often sing to you, but still, my dear, you do not come out. I have fallen in love with someone who is hiding inside of you. We should talk about this problem, otherwise I will never leave you alone. And you might hear that in terms of two, you know, as if somebody's saying that to you. But do you ever have the sense of that longing, that love, that maybe you had a glimpse of it or you know it well, of that relationship with ourself. This is, this is the long-term relationship. We can crave for all kinds of other ones or we may have other ones, but this is really the long-term relationship. To really, as, as that poem yesterday said, to know ourself as beloved and that's not a selfish act. That work, then, is the unwrapping. We see ourselves as beloved. We know the other as beloved. And that's the intimacy. Sometimes intimacy, or normally conventionally speaking and very finely, is, can be known in many ways of uh, intimacy. Of most obvious one we think of is physical intimacy, I think. Sexual intimacy, which may or may not be intimate, as we all know. Sometimes we know intimacy of the heart with another. Often, conventionally, that's uh, very often we're intimate with each other's suffering on that level of, of things. I think they can also be a real enjoyment of all these things, an enjoyment of the intellectual intimacy, really kind of, grappling with ideas and sharing those and really as a way of coming together. The intimacy and all of those are, can be beautiful. And there's an intimacy that's spoken about in the path that is not about two things coming together. It's a kind of undeniable 
just how it is on one level. You might know the teaching from Zen Master Dogen where he says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. All things, and it's also translated as being enlightened or awakened by all things. So how do you do with this concept of intimacy? At at this point, just on the concept level, is it one of your... There tends to be, when I've taught this before and explored these themes, there tends to be a kind of way people like to go with this theme. Either the word is really yummy word, Oh yeah, intimate. You know, you can feel kind of cuddly and cozy, and it, it conjures up images of cuddling and you know, coziness and I don't know what. Or it can be a word that we go, uh, uh-uh, uh, I didn't come to Buddhism for intimacy. Thank you very much. I tried that, <laughs> didn't work. Give me a break. We're doing non-detached. We're doing attached, detached. <laughs> Get me attachments wrong here. We're doing detachment here, aren't we? So what I'd like to show, and maybe you can see this for yourself uh, at times in your practice, that the intimacy that Dogen's speaking about, the being awakened by all things, intimate with all things, studying the self, that's what you've been doing, studying the concocting, the constructing, the all of that seeing as people are reporting, yeah, I see it's concocted. It's not the whole it's not the whole story, it's a it's a it's a construction. Seeing that again and again and again, deeper and deeper and deeper, what does it reveal? What does it show us? Do you tend to think of the Buddha, if you were to ascribe a word? Because the mind, what the mind tends to do, the conceiving mind, beautiful such as it is, a wonderful, wonderful tool that we have, a conceptual mind, can, can really view things in terms of concepts. That's it's what it does, and it does it well. And the nature of concepts, usefully, is um, to dis- discriminate this from that. And necessarily makes two. Necessarily has, a, one of my teachers calls, conceptual scissors. We make me and you. We make light and dark. We make day and night. So with the concept of intimacy, the mind often goes one way or the other. I I prefer the idea of intimacy or I prefer the idea of non-attachment. When you think of the Buddha, whatever it is you know about the historical Buddha, um, the teachings or whatever relationship you have with that, do you think of him as one of his qualities as probably you do, as, as, as non-attached, not attached. Because that's the doorway he's pointing us to, really understanding the nature of clinging. And if we're looking at that as a doorway to see the release, we're studying clinging, we're studying where we take hold, and we're studying the end of that, the, the third, tr- third noble truth, the release 
of the clinging and the freedom of non-attachment. We're less likely to think of him, at least you can tell me if you, if you do, we're less likely to apply the word, word intimate. But my guess is in if we met him or any other Buddhas, there would be a quality of intimacy with themselves, an intimacy with themselves, and necessarily with all things. With us, if we were coming for teachings, if we were listening to the talk. Intimacy doesn't have to look like what we've always thought of it as at this profound level of looking at it. I have one teacher, he's a, he's a kind of a stereotype, his, star, his personality style, his shape is very cool, cooled out. He's, very, uh, he's not forthcoming in his style. Um, and it looks from a kind of conventional view as he sits back and teaches, you wouldn't know if your mind was splitting those two things, intimacy and non-attachment, you wouldn't, wouldn't think of him that way. He's very cooled out. He's not easily agitated. And yet, if you sit with him and meet with him and hear the teachings, there's an undeniable intimacy that is transmitted, that is catching, that we recognize, that I recognize, because something in us knows that we're not separate. Even if we don't know it here, because it looks that way from here, doesn't it? It really looks that way. Something in us knows. Otherwise, I don't think we would be drawn to teachings to look deeply. So how is it for you to sit in the intimate seat and that that's not different than the seat of non-attachment. When we truly leave ourselves alone, and I mean not fiddling with ourselves or fixing or prodding or squeezing or crushing, <laughs> what else do you do? <laughs> Shouting at ourselves. When we truly leave ourselves alone in the, in the kindest sense, breath by breath, we might just really just be there hanging out with that. It can feel very intimate at times, very close. Maybe you felt the intimacy in the silence. It's a place people can know it. That palpable in here presence of a silence. We can feel held and intimate in that. We, something in us resonates along with it. Because it's our nature. There's one other thing that goes with this. Hmm. Oh, maybe I'll get there in a minute. So what is it that hinders us from knowing our non-attached intimacy with all things? 
And the teachings explain this very, very well. Um, Beautiful teachings, which probably many of you know, and you can study and look into in depth of basically the factor of clinging to what is called the five skandhas. The way that clinging, that concocting takes shape around, and I won't go into them at this point, but I'll just name them for you. It's a reminder of form, feeling. We cling to feeling, we cling to perceptions. We cling to our patterns, karmic formations. And we cling to consciousness, to sense-based consciousness. That's a huge, 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 huge teaching there. I'm just naming that. What I want to look at tonight is a slightly different angle on (coughs) how we also, or how from that we cling to different extremes. We cling to different extremes. And the classic story from the tradition is the Buddha and his journey, which again you probably know of the young man who had it all. He had it all on the worldly level, all the sense pleasures, the, the good looks, the everything, the money. The, he had it all on the worldly level and could really indulge it all, really go for it, really work that through and see, oh, it didn't do it for him. He went to the other extreme and became a renunciate but an ascetic kind that was a, more uh, self-denying of the food and the uh, need, basic needs and became very, very, very skinny and denied his body and realized that that wasn't it either. And there, after, as he sat beneath the tree making his determination to understand deeply, comes the teaching of the middle way, the middle way between extremes, between the indulgence and the denial in that case. But I'd like you to make it concrete for yourself because my experiences of kind of moving along a path of falling into different extremes from time to time and then kind of coming back and recognizing, oh, okay. And the middle way being a kind of an investigation of what, where am I leaning right now that is falling on one side or the other. So I'm going to name some apparent opposites. Again, this is what the conceiving mind does. At its heart, in the middle way, they are not separate, these things. But to just see for yourself which you might know from your life, or you might find that one's been showing up in this retreat. Right? So it can be a very, it's nothing wrong with it. I think all of us are kind of going to be veering a little bit that way, a little bit this way, and oop, find ourselves in the middle then. Whoops, off we go again. The one I've known very well for myself is the uh, extreme, the kind of a meditator's trap extreme of the witnessing extreme, witnessing all my experience. To the extreme, I mean, we talk about witnessing, we talk about being awake and not kind of getting entangled in your stuff, but taken to its extreme, anything taken to its extreme kind of loses its life. So the witnessing extreme is where you kind of sit back and you're looking at your experience like down a kind of lens and yeah, sensation, feeling, yeah, pain, pleasure. And you're not really 
affected anymore, but not in the wholesome way of the hands-off, the entangled. It's gotten a little bit distant. It's gotten a little bit um, removed from life. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Becomes a little bit two-dimensional, lackluster. The aliveness goes, and we might feel a little bit more calm. Thank God for that. I'm not so involved. But we get a little bit rigid and lose our heart, actually, in the practice. And we wonder why it's getting dry. Right? The extreme for me with that was the, the other extreme, which you probably all know as well, f- falling into every experience. So sensitive to everything that arose. Feeling it all. <laughs> feeling it all. Now it's really important to feel it all. But we need it balanced with that awareness. So the sensitivity is beautiful. But it has the awareness that can settle back and know know what? That these things that arise, this acute sensitivity of being human is also not ultimately my definition, my uh, who I am. I'm not these sensitive experiences that arise, even though they need very careful handling. Other extremes I've seen, you may see in practice, is the practice of your meditation that is really beautiful in the quality of penetration. Some people have that as a quality that they is well developed. You can look really deeply. It's like you have a laser of a mind and you can kind of go really deep and see things quite clearly. Beautiful, beautiful quality. But taken to its extreme, we keep banging away, hoping things will open up and reveal themselves, and we might be forgetting the widening, the softening, the yielding. Or we may go the other way around. I may yield at everything that arises, but have no access in a moment to this penetration, this clarity, this deep seeing. another way of another example um, in one of the Burmese traditions they when you come for a meditation interview the teacher basically just sees where you are in terms of factors of awakening it's great so it's really interesting to practice in that way so there's seven factors of awakening mindfulness is like a fulcrum if you think of a weighing scales mindfulness in the middle it's always useful And on one side of the scales, you've got three uplifting factors. Energy, joy, investigation. On the other side of the scale, you've got calm, concentration, samadhi, the oneness, and equanimity. They're balancing, they're cooling. And the teacher will see you and be able to assess and, you know, where you need the balance. And I remember queuing up for an interview with a teacher, and I was so excited about what was happening. And I, I had to wait so long, he was running so late, I was almost shaking when I got in with the excitement of how 
amazing investigation was. And I got in there and I was really shaking. Um, and I can see this. And, and he said, too much investigation, not enough calm. Like, oh. <laughs> it's like, so for ourselves, knowing where we kind of start uh, completely understandably to kind of fall into one side of a, of a pair, if you like, that uh, we start kind of plugging along on and thinking that's it. And sometimes we need to open and broaden the view. Oh, is there something else here? Is there something else here? And one of the ways we can see that is if we feel out of balance or if we're kind of plugging away, but we're kind of banging into the same thing again and again. And that's fine because we do have to contact the same things many, many times, but it's kind of we're pushing or it, it lacks aliveness or becomes two-dimensional. There's many examples. I won't go into them all at now. The middle way is right here. Actually, always available. There's a, a beautiful poem from Rumi, many of you might know. And he describes this pair of opposites in a different way. He says... The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You have to say what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds, whatever it is, we make into two worlds. Good, bad, self, other, day and night, light and dark. Back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. It's here. It's here. Just come in a little bit to the middle way. So open our view to see where we might be leaning and pushing on one side or the other. I think Christina might have mentioned in her talk on desire, I'm not sure because I wasn't here, um, the craving, the desire for becoming and the desire for non-becoming. Did she talk about that? Yeah. Um, so here's a very, another very, very good example, very clear because we can really feel it in our own experience. Very physically often. You know, when we're leaning in, the desire for becoming has this kind of body leans forward a little bit. We're kind of hanging out to become this thing we want to become. We want to have, we want to take shape as. If I just do a little bit. The desire for non-becoming, that pulling back from the world, that leaning back a little bit tight, closing the heart of, no, I don't want to be anything. The craving in that. The middle way, we can even feel it. I can even feel it sometimes on my seat. The middle way is right here. The middle way where I'm not making that leaning forward or back is kind of undeniably intimate. It's that thing Jenny read last night from Steve Jobs. We're kind of already naked, actually. 
we're already naked and that's hard to tolerate can be hard to tolerate and hence we make all our wrappings to kind of cushion us a little bit so I want to look at um, a little bit about the, the, the polarity we can make between depth and breadth um, and on retreat of course we give a lot of attention to depth because without studying our depth without looking deeply um, our life feels very two dimensional it's like being a pond skater you know those little those little insects with the legs that sit on the top of the pond and they kind of whiz around <coughs> like this we don't investigate our depth, we, we, we really feel bereft, we miss something. So, of course, on a retreat we give a lot of attention to that. It's something that the world doesn't necessarily teach us. It, it might, but it doesn't necessarily. We have the, the, the temple, the, the sacred places to look deeply. Or we're a kind of constant hitchhiker in our life, never resting. One teacher puts it this way, she says, people are going from wave to wave, like of the sea. People are going from wave to wave, looking for wetness, never knowing that they are the ocean. Right, that kind of, this wave, that wave, you know. We're we're banging on the door of the world to give it to us. And we get disappointed and we know how that goes. So, of course, we give attention to depth here. But we can start to make a duality if we're not careful, if we're kind of disillusioned with the world or um, we come to spiritual practice. We can think, well, that's not where it's at. I have to go deep. That will do it all, as if it will be a save-all for us. And I, I just wanted to say once more, yes, we do need to look at our depth if we want to if we want to what? Yeah, if we want to understand what the end of suffering is, actually. And this and penetrate this incredible mystery of this life. But what can happen in spiritual circles is the, the spiritual ego, we could say, that starts to make a duality with the world and thinks that the world is not really where it's at. And we can start to notice that in terms of things like, you know, the, the depth dimension often talked about as more vertical, like a, a vertical pole can have a kind of, we might feel a little more self-sufficient and that's fine, but to its extreme, the extreme of it will be a little bit more aloof, perhaps superior, um, maybe averse to contact. We might get attached to the silent and feel impinged upon by things. can be a kind of a pride or arrogance in it. And if it's not balanced, the extreme of it is we keep knocking at the door of depth saying, come on, 
I want to get more awake. I want to see more deeply. And we may be neglecting our attention to the dimension of width, of breadth, of the horizontal. One, I was very struck once when I was first in India, in Bodhgaya, the place where the Buddha uh, woke up. And I was practicing in the Tibetan tradition at the time. And one woman had come from Italy, I think, to, to, to be with her teacher, a great guru, a great Tibetan master. And she'd come to do all these fantastic deep practices that are offered in that tradition. And she'd gotten there and made this journey and sold up, finished what she needed to do in the world and took care of all her details and came to him for the teachings. And he said, yes, I want you to set up a leprosy clinic. And she said, no, I want to, you know, I want to go deep. And she saw her duality in that. That wasn't actually where she needed to be, and she, she agreed with him in the end. It wasn't where she needed to practice in that moment. She went out and then for years developed this marvelous work of serving and in that way. How we make a hierarchy or we can, and equally we can have the hierarchy the other way, that the world is where it's all at and there's no such thing as depth. And, right? But that's not so much what I'm addressing here. In spiritual circles, the depth dimension, of course, understandably gets, gets valued because it's valuable. But with the hierarchy of it, we can you know, be in, in awe of. You hear phrases more like, wow, she's really deep. Right? And that might mean something like, whatever it means for you, whatever it looks like for you. For me in the beginning, it's funny, it was, it was the one teacher I sat with, oh, he's really deep. And it was because he was nothing like my family. Um, <laughs> I don't know if he was deep or not, but it was like he was very, he had a kind of an austerity about him. I thought, that's, that's the real thing. Right? You rarely hear kind of with such value and attribution of, wow, He's really wide. He's so wide. He's the widest guy I've ever met. He's so broad. You know, you don't... That doesn't tend to get the the kudos in the same way. And yet, what incredible work there can be quietly or largely in the world in that horizontal dimension that expresses, that can express our depth. Someone might be plugging away at their work there And we may not even recognize the depth that's fueling and supporting them in that way. It could be beautiful. So I offer this just as a, 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 if it's relevant for you in any way. The, the, The extreme of the horizontal, of course, which we know is skating around the surface, we only have our sense of balance in dependency or contact. We keep plugging away at the world, saying, deliver for me. And if we look at both, both, we are multidimensional. We're not all breadth, we're not all depth. We are multidimensional beings. That if we include both, the depth of the breadth, the practices of breadth, which probably we'll speak a little bit more about tomorrow, and meditation includes that, but we're not making it so explicit necessarily. If we include both dimensions, if, I, if you see the, the shape I'm making with this horizontal and this vertical, 
If you join the, join the ends, at some point you might not even need to join the ends. It might just go on and on. But if you join the ends, we have a larger container for our life, for our service, for what we love, for what we want to cultivate. If we're all vertical, we can stand alone, we know how to be independent and self-sufficient, and we can go deep and we know how to get calm. But if that's to the detriment of our relational and our love, then we topple over. Punk. There's, no, there's not enough uh, of a container for all of what this life can hold for us. This year for me, and I, as I say it, the, again, I think we, we're always looking at for the middle way. Always, always, always. More and more subtly. And this year for me, finding that I, uh, not knowingly, we don't normally know we've leaned one side of the middle way, right? Something happens, doesn't it? Something happens and wakes us up a little bit. And recognizing that I needed to call upon my friends in a way that I never had before. I really needed to make myself... Uh, I needed them in a way I didn't need them before. Or I didn't think I needed them before. Right? And that kind of softens the, the aloofness or the uh, arrogance of a supposed independence. And contrastly, it can be the other way around. You know, we're always leaning on people and we need to learn what it might mean to stand on our own feet. T.S. Eliot says in Ash Wednesday, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. And see with any falling into extremes, we'll go to one or the other. Oh, it's all empty, doesn't matter, who cares? If we take it as a doctrine rather than as a tool for investigation to see for ourselves. Or everything matters so much that we burn out. That we burn out. And I'm painting them in caricatures. I, I, it's not my intention to be unkind in that. I see that very much in myself. It's to paint, paint it in vivid colours so that maybe we can see a little bit of where that might show up for us. <coughs> this, from, this is from Nagarjuna as well, who Rob was quoting last night. I really like this very much. Buddhas say, emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. If we pick up a teaching and make that the truth even, and lean into that and use the conceiving mind for that, we'll also miss something. And that's not wrong. We're going to keep doing that. And then we wake up to it because eventually there's suffering when we cling. And that tends to motivate us, it seems. Believers in emptiness are incurable. It's another piece, I think it's from the Tao Te Ching, where it says, um, don't lose, don't, 
Don't get entangled in the world and don't lose yourself in emptiness. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? And if we look at this metaphor of the vertical and the horizontal, you know, we can look at it as the container, we can also look at where those those places meet in the center. The place where the universal and the impersonal depths of truth meet this very particular, unique, specific being called you with her history and her life and her struggles and her pain and all of that that's also part of the picture. Right at the heart, our our naked humanity, our incomplete humanity, our (coughs) fragile, as Rob was talking about in the meta today, Um, I think it was the word, was it fragile? He talked about relationships, was it fragile? Well, that's how I heard it. Um, Body. Vulnerable body. Fragile. This ephemeral existence, our emotions, the relationships, all can be gone in a second, impacted in a second. How to hold that together and where does that leave us? So as we are willing to relinquish the extremes, just for a second, and you do that every time, it's not something you have to, it's not something you have to figure out. It's like we're constantly coming back. Oh yeah, just this breath. I meet it both with width and with clear seeing, with penetration. Yes, I sit in my strength and I defend myself from the judgment that arises and there's a gentleness The strength and the gentleness can be there. The uprightness and the gentleness. To relinquish the extremes when we see them. To come back to the middle way. Yes, there's a path for that. And we'll speak about that tomorrow. But right here and now in the moment, when we're not leaning into something for our definition, it's undeniably seen that we are already naked, actually. We can keep wrapping ourselves up, and that's okay. We might need to do that. But here on retreat, you probably all get a taste of what it's like to let the wrappings drop off a little bit. And what a relief that is when the wrappings of all who we thought we were can start to soften or as one person put it today, she said it's like um, newsprint, the letters on newspaper, all kind of like stuck to her. They started to kind of hover in front of her and got wider and wider in space, all of these definitions. And more and more the space got revealed rather than all the ideas about who and what she is. One teacher puts sitting in this the seat of the middle way of not leaning she says it's tolerating the inconceivable tolerating what the mind can't conceive 
Now, this is not an anti-intellectual teaching by any means because the Buddha was extremely bright and good at using concepts. But seeing that that, to the limit of that, to understand the limit of the conceiving mind, that it will see things in twos, it has to. It has to, if that's what we're using as our main lens of reference. There is more to the mind than it's conceiving. There is an aspect of mind that is not conceptual. How is it when the thoughts die down in your meditation? How is it when you're not telling yourself a story about if you're good or bad and not much is going on? How is it for you to tolerate not conceiving? Because we're constantly conceiving of ourselves and telling ourselves we're doing good or we're doing bad or we're probably the worst meditator here or we're probably the best or we're almost there. I can feel I'm all All the things we tell ourselves about ourselves, any, 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 any definition that your mind comes up with about who you are is Mara, the personification of delusion. When those die away and we hear the silence a little bit, or nothing much is going on, and we go, but isn't there, isn't there an issue I should be working on? Don't worry, there'll be plenty. But in those moments when they're not there, what's it like to widen and deepen in that inconceivable? The blank pages where the world has not been written, the story has not been written in that moment. Like the snow when it first falls. Kind of pristine, audible silence. (coughs) To go out at the night sky, there's been some really beautiful night sky, clear. To go out there and hang out. Sometimes you can feel the vastness and the silence and there's no story about ourself in that moment. Is it tolerable for you? Maybe we think we really like that. Yeah, guy house, great, I'll come and look at the vast wide night sky and surrender completely and melt into the oneness and we go outside after our cup of tea and Look up and, yeah, lovely. Right, let's go to bed. Right? Sometimes it's not so easy to tolerate. And we can extend those moments. I remember standing by a tree at the old guy house, practicing. There's a, a, a very simple, beautiful teaching where the Buddha talks about, through the sense contact, to, uh, in, in, I think my teacher told us and I went out to practice in the seeing, so through the visual sense, in the seeing, just the seeing, sometimes translated. In the seeing, just the seeing, just the seeing. Nothing in between, not two things coming together, not a story about me and the tree, but just the seeing. I went out to practice just the seeing, just the seeing, wow, for about two and a half seconds. (laughs) And then I walked off. And it really was, it was kind of amazing to be so intimate with the tree. It wasn't two things, it was, it was, but so what? And I could see my mind as I walked off go, well, nothing in it for me. And there isn't really. 
there's not something in it for that normal, usual sense of ourself. And yet something still draws us, doesn't it? Something in us still recognizes those moments as touching us, as profound, as calling us, even though it's not always so easy to tolerate. So let's just sit for a few minutes together. You don't have to close your eyes. There's another whole duality that's very interesting to explore between inner and outer. And uh, sometimes us in this tradition can think it all happens on the inner. That's the real practice. And we make a discrimination about the outer. So have your eyes open for a little bit. And we'll just practice for our last evening of of moving into our transition tomorrow. So feel feel your seat. Let there be enough room for your belly to breathe. Hands are soft, space under your armpits, face relaxed. Sometimes walking past people in the corridor, I think I'm supposed to do something with my face. You know that thing where we kind of see another person? Sometimes it's really really spontaneous and sometimes it's like we think we're supposed to do something with it. You know, as we walk past someone, they're going to gonna expect something, right? How about for this last half a day, we leave ourselves alone and if, we're not, if we want to look away, we look away, but we're clear that we're doing it. If we want to look, we look, but we know we're looking. If we contract, we contract, no problem. And we know it, it's like, wow. Look at that, I shrunk into a walnut when I walked past that person. We expand, we feel the love. Let yourself feel the love for that being, for what we're doing here, this noble endeavor. So breathing in this simplicity, actually. I think as well as not attached and intimate, the Buddha in all his extraordinary brilliance of mind, was also probably very simple in his presence and being. And hearing the silence of the night, breathing with it. was the beginning of a sentence there that got ended. Just listening to the silence. Letting yourself bathe in this last evening together to really let the silence impress itself upon you. It's very nourishing, can be very nourishing. start to practice that integration. Somebody yesterday, I think, said, yeah, I have had these deep experiences and understanding, and how come I can't live it all in my life? How how come I can't live all that I see deeply? And one of the practices just really is coming back to the body, 
Right now, as you sit, feel your backside, your back, your belly. The calm or the silence, stillness. Sometimes we feel compelled that our action kind of moves away from the depth that we love. And we feel sad about that. But we can practice, and we will. Intimate with the breath. body, sensation, brightness or dullness of the head center, anything in the heart, however it is, contracted, expanded, however many wrappings are on right now. Feel yourself. Daring just for a moment to feel our intimacy with the night. How it's so close to us. Closer than close. In that silence, there is this being called you. And I'll finish with this poem. See if you can keep listening into the silence as you hear the poem. Because one other duality we make is between silence and sound, or stillness and liveliness. Right? It's another thing we do. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into life. And because there is only one you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. It's from Martha Graham. So let's just sit for half a minute together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.